Good evening. Welcome, Harvest Bible Church. We've looked at uh, Israel in the past, the basic present, and now we'll look tonight at the future. Before we do, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, as we open your word tonight, I pray that you would speak through me. If I say something that's wrong, may it never be thought of or heard again. I pray that uh, your word would speak, and uh, for all the things that we know nothing about, I pray that I and none of us would go around thinking we do. Uh, it's a prophecy of the future. You know when and what it will look like. I pray that you will enlighten us and excite us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I pray that because don't be one of those people that thinks you know the future. Don't be one of those crazy. There's people that like to study eschatology, and there's quacks. And you've met quacks. They've got a cockamamie idea for something every day. Here's this. What about this? What about that? Let's just let God's Word show us what it does. And if there's questions, okay. God didn't, didn't say, I'm going to give you every little thing. Uh, but uh, it is pretty exciting uh, what He has given us. Um, often called uh, Gog and Magog. Uh, chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel are uh, kind of the eschatologist's chapters. You drop your Bible, it opens there, because you've been there so many times trying to figure it out and praying through it. Just to bring it up to, to speed, since it's in the 38th chapter, from chapter, or when we look at Israel's history, which we've looked at the last couple of weeks, uh, we start with Abraham, that's where the, the Israelite nation begins, Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, who was renamed Israel, who had a fourth-born son named Judah, hence the Jews who descend from Judah, and uh, the 11th-born of the 12 sons named Joseph. And so Abraham comes from Ur of the Chaldees, he moves into the land of Canaan, which is modern Israel or Palestine. Um, he was promised a son, had son Isaac, had a son Jacob. God renamed him Israel, as I said. They lived in the land of promise. Joseph, however, was sold into slavery. And uh, he lived down in Egypt. Later on, once his family got wind that he was alive, the family went down to Egypt. And that's where we meet them in the days of Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses is born in Egypt as part of that group. Uh, once he is 40, God tells him, you're going to lead my people. He goes out into the wilderness for another 40 years and then leads God's people, Israel, for the next 40 years of his life. Yes, a long life. Uh, he did not get to go into the promised land. Joshua did. Uh, he took the Israelites into the promised land, Canaan. That's what the promised land is, modern Palestine. Uh, once Joshua died, Israel was ruled by judges. Uh, after the judges, the last judge was Samuel. Um, you had the united monarchy under King Saul. 1050 B.C. to 1010 B.C., followed by King David, uh, 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C., and then his son Solomon, 970 B.C. to 930 B.C., each one reigning for 40 years. After Solomon, his son, split the kingdom, Rehoboam split the kingdom with another king named Jeroboam, and the divided monarchy in Israel, where you had Israel, the land of Israel in the north, and Judah in the south. In the north, the Assyrians came in and took that land and interbred with the Jews in 722 B.C., uh, they became known as people we call, the Bible calls, Samaritans, half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. In the south, the Judeans, they lasted another couple hundred years, almost a couple hundred years, until they were taken to captivity by the new world empire at the time, uh, who had defeated the Assyrians. They were called the Babylonians. And so they went into Babylonian hands, ultimately in 586 B.C. Uh, they returned from their exile 70 years later, 70 years from, from 605 B.C. when they first went in. They went in in waves. Around 70 years later, they returned. They rebuilt their temple in 516 B.C. So from 586 B.C., when it was ultimately destroyed, to 516 B.C. is 70 years. And so they rebuilt their temple in 516 B.C. under a man named Zerubbabel. We learn about him in the book of Ezra. Uh, then we've got about 400 years of what we call silence or the intertestamental period. We looked at what happened during that time period uh, a couple of weeks back. And then the next prophet on the scene after Malachi, over 400 years later, is John the Baptist, announcing that the Christ is coming, points to him. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Believe in him. Tells his disciples, go follow him and be his disciples. And they do. Jesus of Nazareth, first century. Jerusalem falls in A.D. 70. The walls are torn down. The temple is desecrated. What Jews remain in the land, they try another revolt in 135. They are expelled by the emperor Hadrian in 135, and the land lies desolate uh, from 19, for 80, 135 to A.D. 1948 per a U.N. resolution, which says this land will be Jewish land. And they've been trying for a two-state solution ever since. Arabs, as you know, weren't too happy that the Jews got that land. Uh, they thought it was their land. But strange, they never did anything with it. 
uh, Jews came in and made it into a first world country and uh, a democratic one at that and become, became our allies or one of our allies. So when we get to the book of Ezekiel, if you have your Bible, you want to turn to Ezekiel 38, uh, Ezekiel chapter 38, or punch a button on your phone, whatever you got. Difficult but wonderful chapters. Only difficult, not in a difficult reading, but uh, when is this going to happen? That's the difficulty. When will these events happen? So bringing up to chapter 38, getting the context, in chapter 33, God emphasized to Ezekiel the task to preach. He told Ezekiel, you go tell these people that what they're doing is sinful, and if you don't tell them what they're doing is wrong, I'm going to hold you responsible. I think the same principle is true today in preaching. It's the preacher's task to tell people you're sinners. You can't live like that. Can't live with your boyfriend before you get married. Can't live with your girlfriend. Before you get, that's called adultery. It always has been, always will be, even though we live in a day where that seems seemingly okay. You have to point out sin. If I don't, I'm held responsible for those who came to my church and were never told it was wrong. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to stand before God with blood on my hands, so I say the truth. Doesn't make me many friends. Neither did it make Ezekiel, nor any of the prophets, nor Jesus. In fact, they killed him for that. In chapter 34, uh, Ezekiel denounces false teachers and rulers. Not only sin in the midst, but false teachers in the midst. That doesn't go over real well in the modern day either, but it's got to be done. In chapter 35, he denounces God's enemies, who are the nations that surrounded Israel. All those nations that hated Israel do the same denouncing today in the same region of all those who hate Israel. Heck, you can go into New York City and denounce uh, all the enemies of Israel. I think they're just all the, the major colleges and universities in the world today. In chapter 36, God gives Ezekiel the prediction, the prophecy, that Israel, in spite of being scattered and living in the nations, by the way, Ezekiel is the prophet of Israel when they're in Babylonian captivity. They're separated from their God. They have no temple, they have no worship, they have no relationship with God. They think they're doomed, but Ezekiel is telling them, no, you will be reborn. God will bring you back to life. That's the the prophecy in Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 37, it's a prophecy very similar to it of the resurrection of Israel. And you've got that valley of dry bones where Ezekiel goes out and he sees a valley full of dead bones. And God says, son of man, calls him son of man. Will these bones live? He says, well, Lord, you know. But no, dead bones don't live. And he watches them come back to life. He watches bone upon bone. He watches sinews and flesh come upon. He watches a people resurrected. It's symbolic of God saying the nation of Israel, though completely dead, seemingly dead, will come back to life because I will bring them back to life. In fact, when Israel became a state, their first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, said, we've seen Ezekiel 37 come to life right here. Now, whether that was true or not, Ben-Gurion was not a Messianic Jew, but uh, he knew his Old Testament. And then in chapters 38, 39, it will emphasize the future of the land of Israel. The future of the land of Israel. So chapters 40 and 48 emphasize the sanctuary that will be rebuilt, that will be rebuilt. In fact, all the dimensions in Ezekiel 40 to 48 for a temple, that's not what they rebuilt when they went back from captivity. In fact, it was such a huge temple, it's never been rebuilt. And one wonders, well, what was God talking about? Well, we believe, I believe, what I teach you to believe in dispensational theology is that that is yet to happen. That will be the temple that is rebuilt. It's about the size of the present city. It's so big. In the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37, they represent scattered Israel in her deadness. They aren't dead bodies, but dry bones. A dry bone, it's just that, right? It's not dead. And we know that Israel was dead. They were out of the land. God sets his preachers in the midst of the dead bones, telling them to preach so that life can be given. I would say we do that today, not necessarily in Israel, although in Israel, but as preachers of the gospel, we stand and we talk to people who are spiritually dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. However, if you will receive the Lord Jesus Christ, he will make you alive again. So it's the same principle. Can dead bones live? Absolutely not. But eternal life stems from the preaching of God's word. The medium through which God brings spiritually dead people to life. That's why if you're not giving yourself, either as a Christian or an unbeliever, to the preaching of God's word, you will spiritually wither away. I don't understand people that call themselves Christians, that don't go to church, that don't read the Bible. I mean, it's one thing to not call yourself a Christian. Fine, you you get it, or you don't get it. But to call yourself a Christian and to never go to church, or to wonder why my life is a mess and I'm not allowing myself to be fed by God's word? 
Um, I mean, if, I, if I'm walking around hungry all the time and my wife says, well, have you eaten? No. Well, I think I know why you're hungry. We laugh. It's so absurd, but it's the same true spiritually. Your life is a mess. Your marriage is a mess. Well, when's the last time you went to church? Uh, never. When's the last time you gave to a church? Served Christ. When's the last time you prayed? Worshipped Christ. Well, never. I think I know your problem. And there's the problem of your marriage and everything else that follows. God's promise to Israel in Ezekiel 37, 11 to 14 is that he will indeed restore them. And he does. He's, I will do this, he says, in spite of their scattered nature. And in the latter part, in the same part of chapter 37, I should say, there's clear Old Testament teaching on the resurrection, calling Jews to repent so that they might come to life and live in the land of promise. And that land is the land of Israel, the very land that God promised Abraham and his descendants through Isaac, the land today that is in the news where there are people killing each other because they think that land belongs to them, either Arab or Jew. We'll note the two stages of life, first the physical or the national uh, life of Israel and their restoration their spiritual renewal. Now today, Israel is a spiritually dead nation. They are not Christians, by and large. Now there are Jewish Christians, we know that. There are Arab Christians. There are Gentile Christians. Us, right? Uh, but there is a spiritual renewal. There is going to be a revival in Israel that God promises will happen. That's what he says in chapter 36 and 37. I will make this happen to you. It's all God. And Israel is being restored nationally. We see that today. In the future, she will be restored spiritually, likely through the preaching of what we read about in the book of Revelation, chapter 7 and chapter 14, through the preaching of the 144,000. That's 12,000 from each tribe in Israel. Why would they need the preaching of the 144,000? Because the church has been raptured. Otherwise, they would be. We would be the ones out preaching the gospel. That's our commission, but we're gone. This is a promise for Israel's future, both in Ezekiel's day and our own day. And so this has pertinence for our day today, the news and what's on the news tonight, even. I want you to note two regatherings of Israel. This is very important. So if you're, if you're awake for anything, stay awake here at the beginning for the regatherings of Israel. Number one, first there will be, according to the Bible, Ezekiel 20, verses 38, 33 to 38, speaks of a worldwide regathering in unbelief. In other words, God is going to regather his people who are scattered all over the planet in spite of the fact that they are not Christians. He is going to regather them. Note what he says. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. I will purge from you the rebels, and those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the land where, you, where they sojourn, and they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. That last phrase is why God is doing it. You're going to know that I exist and that I am powerful. So we're talking about God bringing these people out. I believe this was fulfilled in 1948. They came out of the Holocaust out of wrath, great wrath. Six million of them died there. And back into their land in unbelief. Remember the UN decree in 1947 followed World War II. The Jews have no land. Everywhere they go, they're kicked out. And there was an attempted annihilation of them in Germany and in Poland. Get rid of them, kill them all. And yet the UN decree brought them back into their own homeland from all the nations. And they're still flocking there from all over the planet. And they're still in unbelief. And this is all in preparation for God's future wrath. So in other words, they're all flocking to their land. God's bringing them there so that he can pour out his wrath on them a second time. He will judge this people for their unbelief. This gathering came with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm with wrath poured out. We've seen that in the last couple of weeks. And if you've ever studied anything about the Holocaust or been to a Holocaust museum, I believe it's fulfilled in 1948. Since Israel has been gathered from the four corners of the earth, not just Babylon. Some will say, well, no, he meant bringing them back from Babylonian exile. And yet the prophecy says from all over the planet. Here now, we saw in 1948 and, and following, these Jews are now coming from all over the planet. So I'm proposing to you, the first regathering started, came in 1948. How many regatherings are there? There's only two. And the Bible says it. The second regathering. This will be followed by a second worldwide regathering. This time, however, the Jews won't be in unbelief. They will be in their belief, in faith, 
and it will be in preparation for the blessing of the Messianic kingdom. Note, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 to 12. Isaiah says this, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. There's only two. If the first one has occurred and occurred in 1948, there's only one left. And when he brings them back, he's bringing them back in faith. They will come back to that land in faith. Based on this verse, there can only be two. One has already transpired. What awaits is Israel being regathered in faith. That's why we want them to be saved. We reach out to them. We, we love Jews that know Christ. We want others to know Christ. Some have made it their entire ministry just to minister to Jews. Nothing wrong with that. Their second regathering, God says this in Ezekiel 37 in that prophecy of dry bones. Note, note all God's I will. Not I probably, maybe, sort of, kind of the way the generation today talks. They can't say a word without saying sort of, kind of, essentially, maybe, kind of, possibly, I kind of do. I sort of do. If you talk like that, record yourself and try to get rid of it. Talk in absolutes, especially when you mean absolutes. God talks in absolutes. He says this, I will take Israel from among the nations. I will gather them into their own land. Is there any ambiguity there? I will make them one nation in the land. One king will be for all of them. They will no longer be two nations. I will deliver them and will cleanse them. My servant David will be king over them. They will walk in my ordinances and will keep my statutes. That's a good day coming, isn't it? They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Again, no ambiguity. God saying, here's what I'm going to do. It's my world. It's my people. They won't obey me on their own. I will make them do. I don't know why people want to rail against the doctrine of election. If God didn't elect and, and turn our wills, we would never believe. That's what's called grace. Grace. So when we look at Ezekiel 38, 1 to 3. I've got it all up on the board, so if you didn't bring your Bible, you can look up, see it if you're visual. Word of the Lord came to me. This is right after the Valley of Dry Bones. Son of man, that's what he calls Ezekiel. Set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. The prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So Gog is a person. Magog is the land where he's from, and he's got a prophecy against him. And say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog. Got to emphasize that G on the end because it sounds a lot like God, right? Gog. Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now I've highlighted Prince of Rosh because not all your translations say Prince of Rosh. And you're going, what? What's going on? Yeah, okay, well, here it is. In the Net Bible and other Bibles, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, turned toward Gog in the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Why? It's because Rosh means head. Uh, the Hebrew Rosh means chief head. It's why Rosh Hoshana. You've heard of that? Jewish New Year, first of the year. Uh, Rosh means chief head. No nation in the Bible is known by Rosh. So some translations, instead of saying he's the, the, the what does it say, the prince of Rosh, where Rosh is a, is a noun, a place, uh, Rosh is actually just means head of. It doesn't change the meaning much. Some have seen it said, Rosh, that sounds a lot like Russia. He's talking about Gog, who is a leader in Russia. I don't buy that. Uh, there's good argument for it. I, don't, I can't say that I think that it's absolutely wrong, but I think it's better to take it as uh, Gog. He is of the land of Magog, and he is the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. That's two other territories. I'll show you where they are. So who is Gog, first of all? The name appears in Ezekiel 38, 39. In 1 Chronicles 5, 4, it's a, he's the son of Joel. For the reason, son of Joel called him son Gog. I don't know why anyone would do that, then or now. Uh, the name itself means roof or top. Not necessarily rooftop, but roof or top. Let's name our kid Roof. <sighs> Gog is used in the Septuagint. That's the, the, the Greek version of the Hebrew. And it's uh, Agag. Gog is Agag. It's perhaps a title. Possibilities, possible identities. There was a king of Lydia from 716 to 678 BC, also known as Gugu and Gyges. Um, yeah, you would not want those names either. 
There was also a figure from ancient history called Gagu of the land of Saki, which is northern Assyria. Uh, there was an official title, um, which I believe that's what Gog is. It's a title like pharaoh or president or emperor. Uh, another possibility is it's a general term for any enemy of God's people. Uh, some have said, no, Gog is just, it's, it's, a, it's a what Ezekiel wanted to call Babylon. Every other, all the other prophets have prophecies against Babylon. Ezekiel doesn't. Why? Well, Ezekiel was in Babylonian captivity and may have hidden his, his uh, prophecy against Babylon as just Gog. That's a good possibility. And some say it just means darkness. Um, I'm going with the, with the title. I think he's talking about no, it's none of the people from the past. In verse 8, you'll see he says, after many days you will be summoned in the latter years. So I don't think it's anyone in history. He's talking about a future leader titled Agog. Uh, and the last days, I think it cannot refer to a historical person. Gog is likely a title, but whomever he is, he will arise in the latter days. That is, are the last days. That's almost always in the New Testament and the Old, talking about what we call the tribulation time period. So if you don't know what that is, we live in a day, the present day, we're moving towards a time where Israel will be given peace by a world ruler who will allow them to rebuild their temple, which will be amazing because Jews just stepping up on the Temple Mount today could start a war. Ask Ariel Sharon. Um, they hate Jews, Arabs hate Jews. They've got their dome of the mosque there, dome of the... Yeah, that's what I said, Dome of the Rock. The mosque, Dome of the Rock, thank you. Uh, Jews are not allowed there. That, that's, that's warlike stuff. So how is somebody going to come along and make a peace treaty and Israel's going to build their temple where Dome of the Rock is? So my theory, Muslims will be gone by then. And I think they are gone after this war. Now that's my theory. I don't know it. I'm not saying that's the way it is. But I don't know how else you get it there. Muslims don't make deals with Jews. And Jews know that a Muslim making a deal with them is lying to them. They know that. They're not dumb. Um, but I think it's a title. And the last days refer to a time when that peace treaty is made. There's a seven-year time where Jews think they're at peace, but they're not. It's a false peace. Uh, and so I think it'll be, I don't think Gog is the Antichrist by any stretch. But it's a, in fact, I think he predates the Antichrist. I'll show you what that is. Try to hold questions to the end. But go ahead, Charlie, if, I'm, if I need to clarify. No, I'm not talking about current events at all. Please don't plug in anything I say with current events. This has to do with a last time and end time. If you, and this is just, this is not to me to scold you or anything. This is just a, a warning. Please don't read the news today and start checking off. Yep, that's that. That's that. If you're seeing end times events in the Bible, folks, you missed the rapture. You did, because those end times events are not implemented until the rapture. Okay. Thank you. So, and that's possible. There's no doubt somebody in here is going to miss the rapture. You think you're a Christian, and you're not, or you know you're not, and you're going to look at him, but hmm, that idiot preacher at Harvest Bible Church actually knew what he was talking about. He's gone, as is the rest of the church, and I'm here. So that's got to mean something, right? <laughs> he is either the Prince of Rosh, as we looked at earlier, Rosh being a geographical location as... In the New American Standard Bible, the New English Bible, and the Jerusalem Bible. Or he is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, as you see in your ESV, KJV, NET, NIV, and uh, yeah, all that alphabet soup. And these are areas in modern Turkey and Armenia. Um, and so let's take a look at it. What is the land of Magog? So we have some idea. Let's just summarize that Gog is a future world ruler. It's a title, Gog. But he is of the land of Magog. So where is Magog? Magog, as a person, was a descendant of Japheth. Remember Shem, Ham, and Japheth? Uh, the three sons of Noah? Uh, he was a descendant of, of uh, Japheth. We see him in Genesis 10-2. He appears to have settled in the land that was eventually occupied by the Scythians, the modern Asiatic peoples, uh, or the Mongols and the Huns. I'll show you a map in the next slide. In Ezekiel, it's used three times, Magog, at referring to the remotest parts of the earth. What's the remotest part of the earth to you? To me, it's Siberia. Right? We talk about Siberia, kingdom come type thing. I remember asking my dad, Dad, where's kingdom come? Well, son, it's a... I did. I remember that question. Well, it's a... He said, either I don't know or I just think it's an expression. That's what he said. Um, areas today called Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Russia. 
It would be the general area of Magog. Here's the old Scythian Empire. Now, if you don't know where you are, look over to the left. You see Roman Empire. Right underneath the, the E on Roman Empire, that's Israel. And you see Arabia, believe that. Parthia, that's the area of modern Iraq and Iran, Afghanistan. North of that, Scythia, that's, that would be Magog. It is modern Russia. Modern Russia. So is Magog Russia? Well, the reasons to believe that Rosh is Russia, and again, I don't think we think it's, it's Russia because Rosh sounds like Russia. Um, it's ironic that it's going to factor in that way, uh, but I think, because I, I think Rosh is, means chief prince, not Russia or land, and yet it all comes out the same way. But here's some reasons to believe it is. Some of the countries named by Ezekiel appear to be located in the former Soviet Union, which is Russia. Armies come from the north. By the way, in the Bible, whenever a direction is given, north is always north of Israel. South is always south of Israel. East is always east of Israel. West is always west of Israel. Israel in the Bible, it's the center of the earth. Everything is northeast, south, and west of Israel. And so we see these armies from Gog's empire coming from the north. The only thing north of Israel, when you go past Syria and Lebanon, is Russia. Uh, I keep doing this like you need some demonstration with my hand that it's up there. And it's in the remotest parts of the north of Israel. That's what Ezekiel calls it, says it. Some surmise that Tubal is Tobolsk, Meshech is Moscow, and Rosh is Russia. This is unlikely. Uh, these were nowhere, no one in anyone's mind. Russia didn't exist in those days. Um, matter of fact, nothing was north in the, just this area. Ezekiel had historical places in mind applicable to his days, yet these modern cities are indeed in and around the area in question. And so here you would say around, surrounded by the, the red outline, this is the general area of Magog. Magog. Um, here's more of a specific area in modern, modern Kazakhstan, uh, Magog, which was, again, this is, as you remember, when the Soviet Empire fell, the early 90s, it was, uh, that was all part of the USSR at that time. Meshach and Tubal. Remember, he's the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Gog of Magog, that whole area, we believe that's Russia. He's also the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now, what you're looking at on the map there, that's modern Turkey. There's Meshach and Tubal, uh, close to modern Armenia. Two peoples were recognized in ancient Assyrian documents. One was called the Mushki and the other called Tubali. Both were in Asia Minor. Uh, in the area of Magog, in short, modern Turkey is in view. So he is not only king of the area of the north, which would be modern Russia, he's also to extend over to uh, what we would call modern Turkey. Now, all of that is just to say, in the end, in the latter days, a ruler from the north will come. He is a ruler of an entire land mass that we would call as Russia. We would know as Russia and Turkey. Here's uh, uh, more of it. You've got... Rosh, if it's Rosh, or it's the chief prince of, of Meshech, and he's from Magog, and there it is just in the color-coded area. The alliance. So who's he coming with? God says, I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws. Now, this is going to be strong language for I'm going to drag you down from the north into the land of my people, and you're going to judge them. And I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Note the, the nations, Persia, Ethiopia, and Put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Beth Togarma, from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Now here are those nations. Persia is Iran, Cush is Ethiopia, Put is Libya, Gomer are the Sumerians, the land of, of Armenia, just east of uh, Turkey. And Beth Togarma, that's the Hittites and the Armenians. Uh, these are the nations. By the way, none of them are Arab. None of these nations are Arab nations. They're Muslim nations in the modern world. And God's going to bring all these Muslim nations together. I also want you to know something about Russia. Russia is not Muslim either. Russia is nothing. They are atheist. Now, in, throughout the Bible, you don't come across atheists. No one was atheists. They were polytheists. Uh, they believed in multiple gods. And the commandment of God was, you will have no gods before me. It was so unusual that there is nothing in the commandments that say, you can't be an atheist. Atheism is unique, at least in the Bible, talking about this army of the north. 
Uh, and it didn't exist, by the way, in Ezekiel's day. Ezekiel is prophesying about a nation that didn't exist. Not the way it exists now and what will transpire in the future. Not a single Arab nation takes part in this invasion with Russia, though Islam is represented greatly in all those nations in our present day. Of course, Islam didn't, didn't exist back then either. Ezekiel's writing this around 500 B.C. So when did Islam come around? 1,100 years later. Here you've got these Muslim countries there on the left, uh, North Africa, to include Arabia, all the way around there, the, and then the armies of the north, and then and the, the one on the right, you've just got uh, convergence of all these nations on the little land of Israel. They're sitting ducks. This is what God says he's going to do. I'm going to put hooks in your jaws, and I'm going to drag you into the land, and you're going to judge my people. Here they are, more of a modern map, all converging on Israel. It's never gone real well for nations that, uh, that come against Israel. Um, ask the the Egyptians in 1948 and the Egyptians and the Jordanians in 1967 and the Egyptians again in 1973. It uh, just never goes too well. And ask the, uh, the Hamas terrorists, not going too well for them today either. And this is Israel in their unbelief. And their, what will he do when they are in Christ? The object of their invasion is Israel. 38 verses 7 and 9, prepare yourself, you and all your companies. In the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword. Okay? He's bringing them into Israel. They are restored from the sword. That's today, although there are skirmishes with, with uh, uh, terrorist groups and have been for years and with the Arabs. But in the latter years, you will come to the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. You come like a storm, like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops. So if Gog were to come today with these armies, this fits today. Israel is sitting in a secure place. They are a first world nation. You can visit them, at least you could for October 7th. Uh, it's kind of shut down now. Um, but even now, they are... Secure. They have an army. They're protected. Um, but I think this may be talking about the time when they're living in this peace treaty offered to them by what we call the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, where God comes down and sees, okay, they're sitting ducks. We're going to come down. We're going to bring all these nations. We're going to find a time where we're going to get them. It's a great time to do it at that point. Israel has to be a state before this invasion can occur. Well, when Ezekiel's given it, they're living in captivity. Uh, they went back to their country, and as you know in their history, uh, they, their temple and their city was destroyed in AD 70, and 135 they were expunged. They came back in 1948, nothing like this has happened since 1948. They have to be a state before this can occur. They are a state, have been for over 70 years. So, we're in a place now where it could happen at any time. It's a land brought back from the sword, a land gathered out of, uh, gathered out of many peoples, a land with mountains that have been laid waste. Uh, we looked at a little bit of that. I gave you a few quotes from people who had visited the land of Israel in the 1800s, one of which was Mark Twain, uh, who wrote extensively on his trip to Israel in the 1800s about how desolate and barren the quote-unquote promised land was, a land overflowing with milk and honey. Uh, it was a mess before the Jews came back and fixed it. Now you, you drive through it, it is a beautiful, beautiful land. They grow bananas, which are not indigenous there, but there's bananas everywhere. They've got trees that are just gorgeous. They've got all kinds of irrigation, water. The Jews have done amazing, wonderful things with the land that the Arabs never did when they had it. And you go into any, anyone who, who visits Israel, uh, you go into a land, an, an Israeli part, it's always permanent, proper, and beautiful. You know when you've hit uh, a Palestinian part of it because it's a, it's a mess. It's like walking into your teenager's room. And it is so distinctive. You're going, I mean, there's trash everywhere. It's filthy. It's just so distinctive. It's a land brought forth out of the nations. And these statements are true of the present day Israel. Couldn't have been prior, uh, accurate prior to 1948. In verses 10 to 13, it will come about on that day. You, still talking to Gog, you will devise an evil plan and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages, against those at rest, those against those who are at rest that live securely, living without walls, no bars or gates, to capture spoil and to seize plunder. 
to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquitted, who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. So, Gog, you're going to go out that day. You're going to see an easy prey like taking candy from a baby, and you're going to go down that at that time. Um, what he's after is spoil. Dead Sea contains 45 billion tons of sodium, chlorine, sulfur, potassium, calcium, magnesium, and bromide. But anyway, it's just one of those things. There's oil there. There's the Dead Sea. All kinds of... Uh, the land is a land rich in uh, natural resources. The Middle East is full of oil. Israel's destruction would not upset any Arab nations. And you know that Russia is behind Iran. Russia is behind Syria. They are funding Hamas. All of these nations loathe and hate Israel. They would love that land they want their hands on it. Why wouldn't they try to get it? Sheba indeed and unlikely uh, that they would look favorably on a Russian occupation force in the Middle East. For note in verse 13 that Sheba, Deden, and Tarshish, which are modern Yemen, Oman, Saudi Arabia, will not favor the Russian presence there. In verse 13 it says, Sheba and Deden and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? They don't necessarily want them down there because they control that area. God's goal in verses 14 to 16, Son of man, say to Gog, on that day when my people Israel are living securely. Now, we don't know when that day is. It's that day in the future, and they're going to be living securely. Will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. Second time he said this. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land. Now some have said, well, why are they riding horses? Why wouldn't they be in tanks? Why wouldn't they be uh, in airplanes? Well, it's a good question to ask. Did, does the Bible not know about future? If the Bible would have said you're going to be in tanks, would people know what in the world it was talking about? Uh, flying airplanes, and you nothing of that. And it could be that by that time, that part of the world is so destitute, they are back on horses. Or it could just be the stealth of the way they come in is to come in on horses. Maybe horses is, is code for tanks. I don't know. But it happens in the last days, and at the very least, we have a nation coming into Israel. It answers why this invasion occurs from God's viewpoint. It's so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. In verse 16. In other words, God is going to show who he is through a pagan ruler titled Gog in his land, and they're going to try to destroy his people. And while they're trying to destroy his people, God is going to destroy all of them. That's why I surmise that Islam, by and large, will be obliterated because God will obliterate all those nations. And I believe it will allow the Antichrist at the midpoint of the tribulation to seize full power of the world. Russia and all of her armies will be gone. Again, I don't know that. Please don't come up and try to argue with me about it. Give me another theory. I've heard them all, I promise. I went to four years of seminary. It doesn't mean I know more than you, but I've written the papers. I had to go through all of it. I don't like the discussion of it. I just I teach it. Here it is. Boom. We move on to the gospel later, right? The nations have yet to learn this, uh, that God is using them to bring about his glory. In verses 17 to 23, we see the destruction of the invaders. Here's what God is doing. Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day. Maybe come about on that day? It will come about on that day. When God comes against the land of Israel, that my fury will mount up in my anger. In my zeal and my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day, there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. They don't do that now. You know? They shake their fists at God. Uh, in the future, they will shake in his presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him. Remember, he's talking about Gog. And I will rain on him and all his troops and all the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. So imagine, this is what's going to happen in Israel. 
This guy's going to come in with all of his allies, all of these Muslim allies from North Africa and all around the land of Magog. They're going to come into Israel and God is going to put them to death. He's going to rain down. They're turning on each other. It's not that the, that the Israeli defense force or the Iron Dome is somehow beating them. It's God working against them. I mean, I think the closest thing we have that today is what happened in the Six-Day War. The Six-Day War, it was sort of like this, sort of. Egypt coming from the south, Jordan coming from the east, Syria coming from the north against this tiny nation. And in six days, they whipped them all. And they took back territory, the entire Sinai Peninsula, all the Golan Heights, they had all this land, and they went and offered it to the Arabs, we'll give you back your land that we won if you'll live in peace with us. No, they wouldn't do it. Won't, didn't, and will not. But that was them fighting in their unbelief. God will fight with, for them. These people will turn against each other, and God is raining down fire from heaven like he did in Sodom and Gomorrah. It tells us what Yahweh will do to Gog for harming his people. It tells us how Yahweh does this, that is through an earthquake, civil war breaking out among the invading soldiers themselves, pestilence, blood, flood, hailstones, fire, and brimstone. It's going to be an interesting war. Sounds similar to the final plagues we read about in Revelation 16. I don't think it is, but it sounds similar to them. In chapter 39, in the place of destruction, he repeats a little bit of what he just said. Thus said the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog. And I will turn you around, drive you on, and from and you and take you up from the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. He's already said that. I will strike your bow from the left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. So there's no doubt what God's going to do. I will give you as food. Not, I will give you food. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. You will fall in the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God. And I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. You see that theme over and over. Now, the armies are said to fall specifically on the mountains of Israel. That's in Dothan, Shechem, Samaria, Shiloh, Bethel, Ai, Ramah, Bethlehem, Hebron, Debir, and most importantly, Jerusalem, which seems to be the goal of this invading army. They're trying to get to Jerusalem, and they're going to fall in these areas. In the Six-Day War, it set the stage for the fulfillment of this prophecy. They didn't even have the land that it, these passages are talking about. Until 67. Prior to 1967, the mountains of Israel, except for a small corridor of West Jerusalem, were entirely in the hands of the Jordanian Arabs. After that, they were considered to be in Israel. Israel took those areas in 1967, made it to the Western Wailing Wall for the first time in centuries. Now, I want you to note, if you have a King James Bible, uh, the translation of the King James in, in chapter 39, verse 2, which says, uh, speaks of one-sixth of the invading army will be left alive. No other translation says this. Now, this is no disrespect to the King James Version. Uh, this was based, the KJV, on a mistranslation. The verb rendered, drag you along. God will drag the army of Gog to a stunning and miraculous defeat. Um, some have said, well, God's going to leave one-sixth of it because of that mistranslation. Uh, actually, the entire invading army is going to be destroyed when they invade Israel, and nothing will remain. So um, uh, I've had people come up and say, well, there'll just be a sixth gone, right? No, that's, you're getting that from the King James Version. I could show you, but you'd be asleep in 10 minutes if I showed you what, what that looks like and how that, it, it, it comes from a Greek, from a Hebrew word, shush, shusha, and shush. Shusha means to drag along. Shush means six, or 60, or 666. Uh, and so it's easy to mistake, uh, but it's a, it is a mistranslation, the King James Version. Uh, even KJV translators today would uh, know that to be true if they knew Hebrew. Uh, but it doesn't change a whole lot. Uh, Ezekiel 39.6 adds that not only is the Russian uh, and allied army destroyed in Israel, but the land of Russia itself is devastated by the raining of brimstone, causing widespread destruction in the nation itself. It will then cease to be a political force in world affairs. Imagine that. There's going to be a time when that amazingly large nation, with all of their, their bravado talk, you are weak. Well, you are no more. And all of your atheistic ways and all of your God-hating, people-hating ways dating back to Stalin, you're gone. You're, you mean nothing. You talk big. When you talk big against God's people, 
you lose big. Well, you're dead. When you're dead, you're dead forever. Well, Russia, the Russian army is gone at this point. The Russian army and their allies. That's all I'm talking about here. Um, what happens if you're saying in, in the time that follows, yeah, they're, they're, still, they're still Antichrist and his forces, which are still monumental, and they are against Israel. But uh, it is, I believe, that the, the Islamic nations are taken out of the picture. And then it allows, I believe, the man who's the Antichrist to have full power over the world at that point. So that's all I'm saying there. This might be the event that allows the Antichrist to take complete control of the global economy and call worship him to himself. And we know this happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. We know this from the book of Revelation. So in other words, what the world is awaiting, the next prophetic event is the rapture of the church. We don't know when it's coming. All we, we say, well, things are bad today. Well, things have been bad for centuries and centuries when you study history. Worse centuries ago than, than it is even now. We see more because we have internet uh, but it's always been bad. We think it could happen at any moment, and it can. So the rapture happens. That's the next prophetic event. We don't know that the, that the peace treaty goes out right after that. It could be a year. It could be five years before a peace treaty goes out. Christians are gone, though. The church is gone. Uh, so I think it happens shortly thereafter where there's a peace treaty given in Israel. Seven years. It's the 70th week of Daniel. We looked at that Sunday, if you were here. The 70 weeks of Daniel, 483 have passed. There's still seven left. That's the one week, and Daniel separates it from the previous 69. In Daniel chapter 29, verses 25 and 26, he speaks of the first 69 weeks, and then he separates the last week. And in that week, he said they will make a covenant, and they will break that covenant in the middle, or he will, meaning the prince who will come. And so the rapture, this peace treaty in Israel, Israel goes in, they're living at peace. It looks like the battle of Gog and Magog happens shortly after that peace treaty. We don't know how long that war lasts. Maybe it lasts a day. Uh, but it, 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 I believe it probably ends right at the midpoint of the tribulation. And once it ends, that's when the Antichrist, this world leader, is able to rise up, take control of the whole world. Um, in chapter 39, verse 78, we read, My holy name, God says, I will make known in the midst of my people, Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. Now, this is, where, this is one of the passages that, that makes Ezekiel 38 and 39 so difficult to place. I will not let my name, my holy name, be profaned anymore. Well, God's holy name is profaned today. It will be profaned in the second half of the tribulation. So if this war happens right before the midpoint, we know that the midpoint of the tribulation till the end, people are cursing God's name. So we wonder, can it really happen before that? Seems like it's got to happen at the end of the tribulation, but there's major problems with that one too. That's why these passages are so difficult to locate where they might happen. And this is one of the passages that keeps us from knowing, eh, it doesn't fit real, real nicely with where we think it should or we think it might. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, it is coming and it shall be done, declares the Lord. That is the day which I have spoken. Not only will God's name be sanctified among the Gentile nations, but in Israel as well. Thus a revival occurs in Israel, causing many Jews to turn to the Lord. Maybe it happens right at the end of the tribulation, and that's when God's name will not be profaned anymore. Also, there's seven years of burning. If it happens at the end of the tribulation, the end of the tribulation is when Jesus comes back. He returns, and he sets up his kingdom on earth, and it's a thousand years of happily ever after. But he says here, then those who inhabit the cities will go out, from, go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them. So imagine all nuclear warheads being, being taken apart, wooden um, weapons, metal weapons all being melted and burned, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs, war clubs and spears, uh, and for seven years they will make fires of them. So that means if it happens by the end of the tribulation, then those fires are burning into the first few years of the millennial reign of Christ, which is, sounds strange to us, but okay, maybe, if that's when it happens. They will not take wood from the field or gather firewood from the forest, for they will make fires with the weapons. Won't need anything other than the weapons of that war. And they will take the spoil of those who despoiled them and seize the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. 
If this battle occurs near the end of the mid-tribulation, it appears near mid-tribulation, it appears these fires will burn into the early years of the millennium. Even if it happens at the mid-tribulation, that's only three and a half years. So you're going to burn them for three and a half years and then three and a half years into the millennium. Or if it happens at the end, you're going to burn them for seven years into the millennium. Okay? Doesn't fit real nicely. And then you've got seven months of burying people that are dead. On that day, God says, I will give Gog a burial ground there in Israel. So Gog, whoever he is, will be buried in Israel. The valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will block off those who would pass by. So they will bury Gog there with all of his horde, and they will call it the valley of Hamongog. Uh, for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. So there's that many dead bodies in Israel. You've got to cleanse the land. You can't let dead bodies lie there. So for seven months, they're going around finding these dead bodies. They're probably all in one place for a good chunk of them, and they're burying, putting, putting dirt on them. For seven months, even all the people of the land will bury them. And I will be, in, be their renown on that day that I glorify myself, declares the Lord. Note this, they will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those uh, who were passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. Now, you've got a bunch of people from Gog's armies. They're all buried, but there's other people scattered around the land and People are designated to go out, go find bodies, make sure they're buried. That's all these people are doing. It's going to happen for seven months. Now, if this war happens at the mid-tribulation point, we know that at the mid-tribulation point, if you're a Jew, what do you need to do? Run and hide. So you're not really at liberty to walk around the land looking for dead bodies to cleanse the land. So it's hard for this to fit into that where it happens at mid-tribulation or into the tribulation. Again, we don't know when this battle happens other than that it is future. Uh, because of this, you know, they're just not free to walk around burying bodies. All you have to know is this. In the future, there's a war. And we know that it's coming from the north and they're going to invade Israel. That's the future of Israel. It's going to be a bloody battle that God's going to win on his own. That's what we taught tonight. That's Ezekiel 38, 39. Now, we'll go through the theological reasons and the possible reasons of when and where it happens next week if you're so inclined to return. <laughs> All right, take a deep breath. I didn't say it was easy. You came because you want to know the history of Israel. I've told you the past. Here's the future. We'll finish this next week in the, in the spirit of Christmas and in loving joy. Hey, God knows what he's doing. I love prophecy Number one, first and foremost, because it's God telling us, here's what I'm going to do. I know who I am. I know who you are. I know that you think things are crazy, but God is saying, I got this. Let's pray. Lord, don't ever allow us to think for a moment you are not sovereign. You are over all. You control all. When we think everything's out of control, you are in control. Thank you. May we worship you for that. I pray, Lord, that we would rest knowing that. We live in a day where there is chaos everywhere. There is war and rumors of war. And you said these would be the, the birth pains that precede the end of time. And they have been here for centuries. Israel is heating up. We pray for the peace of Israel. The peace of Jerusalem can only occur with your second coming. So we pray thy kingdom come. And in the interim, as we wait for your kingdom, may we be found faithful worshiping you and trusting in your sovereignty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 